You are listening to Where is the Line? The stories you will hear will be depraved, disturbing, and true. If you are easily unsettled, you may find this program offensive. And if you are under the age of 18, fuck off. sticks in my mind there was a large brass or something like that cross at the top of the stairs in the vicarage and Maria said it had started to melt during the night of the exorcism the metal that it was made of had started to, to warp or to, to melt or to contort hmm. it, was a, it was a great big solid metal crucifix and apparently it had started to change shape it looked like as it was melting now I know that sounds absolutely ridiculous but this was what she told me in her letter This is going to be our first two-part episode. We could have probably gotten this done in one episode, but Jamie and I spent too much time rambling on about things that have absolutely nothing to do with the topic that we're discussing today. This is a very special episode of Where is the Line in that we have two guests, one of which is someone that I've known for a very long time, and the other is a brand new friend that I've made. The voice that you heard at the beginning of the episode belonged to Phil. Phil is from the UK, and he's someone who has a very close connection with several of the main players in the story that we're going to tell. I really enjoyed speaking with Phil, and I hope that I get to keep in contact with him. And I also hope that he does not regret having done this after he hears both of these episodes. Everybody drinking blood, everybody eating brains, some monster party. Everybody eating flesh, everybody breaking bones, some monster party. Thank you for listening to episode five of Where is the Line? I have a broken rib. Jamie said that I should be sure to tell you that. My name is Kevin. With me again is my friend Jamie. Say something disturbing, Jamie. Kevin's brain tumor. We're not talking about my brain tumor. Say something else disturbing, Jamie. Something disturbing. I ask you this every time. You I know, I know. Methodists. Methodists. Mm-hmm. All right, we can roll with that. Yeah, I don't trust anyone who doesn't use wine for communion. That grape juice bullshit. That's weird. That's really weird. All right. Disturbing word of the day is Methodist. Seriously. (laughs) When you hear someone say Methodist, which I'm not sure that we're actually going to, honk your horn. (laughs) Are you ready to get into this episode, Jamie? Hell yeah. Let's do it. In October 1974, an Englishman named Michael Taylor underwent an eight-hour exorcism. Following this exorcism, Taylor goes home rips out his wife's eyeballs and her tongue, and then he dismembers the family dog. Neither the wife nor the dog survived this. He was shortly thereafter found wandering naked through his own neighborhood, covered head to toe in the blood of his wife and of this poodle, shouting over and over, it is the blood of Satan. That's what we're talking about today. The worst exorcism ever. Why are you laughing at me already? (laughs) 
No, just okay. Go what? On. What? Mm-mm, mm-mm. What? Mm-mm. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> you had to specify that he dismembered the dog and the dog didn't survive the attack. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I've seen two-legged dogs. Just put them on a little cart. Yeah, they have those little. Maybe his torso around. <laughs> yeah, well, they have those little wheelchairs for dogs. You know, like he could have survived that. Before we get into this incident with the exorcism and Michael Taylor, though, we should talk about an event that happened across the pond here in the States nine months and 10 days before Michael Taylor killing his wife in this poodle. And it's something that might seem only peripherally related to this story, uh, but I feel like there's a direct connection between this event and what happened with Michael Taylor. And that event is the release of the most terrifying movie of all time. The Exorcist. The Exorcist is released December 26, 1973. The day after Christmas is the day that they picked to release The Exorcist. And The Exorcist predates Star Wars by a little less than three and a half years. And I'm not sure that prior to The Exorcist, there had ever been a movie that had that kind of hype around it. Oh, man. I I totally disagree. Really? Yeah. All All those big budget epics... Mm-hmm. From the 40s, the 50s, the 60s? No, I'm talking about people lined up around the block passing out over a movie. I wasn't prepared for this, but I, I feel like we could probably find an instance of that decades before. Shortly after we recorded this, I looked it up. It turns out that we could not <laughs> find an instance of that. <laughs> Are you going to get the time machine back out, Kevin? <laughs> But, I mean, you, it, it, th- this movie is freaking people out to this point where it's people are throwing up. People are fainting. People are leaving the movie multiple times and then coming back and trying to tough it out and then getting scared and leaving again. The level of hype that surrounded The Exorcist when it came out was insane. Movie theaters were keeping bath salt. I mean, bath salts. <laughs> that would be a horrible combination. Smelling salts? Smelling salts, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I like the idea of watching The Exorcist on bath salts. Yeah. Give some people bath salts <laughs> and would be show so them The Exorcist. Up. That would be awful. The Exorcist is a movie that ended up getting nominated for 10 Academy Awards, and it won two of them. Uh, it was also nominated for seven Golden Globes. It won four of those. And if you adjust it for inflation, The Exorcist is the ninth highest grossing movie of all time. It even beats out Jurassic Park and The Force Awakens. I've got a clip you should watch. Okay. The manager of the National Theater in Westwood says that there indeed are at least a dozen people who faint or become ill during every showing. But The Exorcist is still drawing sellout houses for every performance, complete with lines around the block. I spent an evening in the lobby just to see if people really do come stumbling out in the middle of the picture, as reported. They did, so I asked them why. I passed out in, in about the first half hour, yeah. yeah. Do you remember what, what it was, what scene it was that affected you so much? Convulsions, when she took convulsions. Because I have a little girl, and it was like watching my little girl. How about you? Uh, I can't even describe it. It's so horrible. It just... Are you guys I don't gonna... know why I waited four hours to see that. 
The devil made her do it, I bet. The fact that people do wait four hours in line and then go back in to see more after they've fainted or gotten sick, I guess it shows how far some people will go for the thrill of being chilled to the bone. And uh, judging from my long night in the lobby, the people most susceptible to being profoundly upset by the film are those who went in believing in the devil, Roman Catholics especially. So after The Exorcist is released, it'd be about another five years before I'm born. Uh, less than that for Jamie. <laughs> Fuck you, Kevin. <laughs> uh, but e- neither of us were alive back then when it came out, but <laughs> it turns out that I know someone who was alive then and who went to see this movie during its original theatrical release. Trying to think of a good way to intro you, special guest. <laughs> 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 took a while to get a hold of you. Had to talk to your agent. <laughs> so we know each other. Oh, yeah. We know each other just a little bit. How do we know each other? Uh, well, <laughs> 40 years ago, I spread my legs and shot you into the world. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> you could have just said you're my mom. I'm his mom. <laughs> you, can, you can edit all of that. No, I'm totally leaving that in. No, you're t- totally not There's leaving that. That's absolutely going in there. You heard what we do? So I wanted to talk to you because you went to see The Exorcist when it was released. It came out in 1973, the day after Christmas. Mm-hmm. So you probably wouldn't have seen it until 74, I'm sure. But you would have been about 16 when that came out? Yeah. One girl at high school was the first one to go see it. She saw it the day it was released at this theater. And uh, she come back to school and told us all about it. You know, we'd read the book, but she told us all about it. And, of course, she had to be sedated during the, <laughs> the movie because she was like a upset about it so so we knew all about it and then two about two weeks later the rest of this little group of mine went and uh, my mother and uh, a friend of mine's mother took us so it was rated r we had to have a an adult to get in so before you go on to that talk a little bit about grandmother (laughs) what what she was like so you know the person that you're going to see this with okay my mother was just this sweet woman that didn't the typical mom back then you know, in the you know 50s 60s just in 70s just just the typical stay at home mother so really sweet religious Oh, uh, she took me to church till I was 12 and I don't know where she got this information but she said when you turn 12 you can make up your own mind whether you want to go to church. And this was a free will Baptist church. So at 12, I made up my mind to stay home and watch Space Ghost. So religious, yeah, but not fanatic. Had grandmother heard about The Exorcist before you guys went? Did not she a word. know anything about it not at all? A word. She had no idea what she was getting she into. She had no idea. She, she just went because she said, well, if Arlene's going, I guess, you know, I can go and help her out with you guys in case y'all get out of control. We were pretty out of control bunch so <laughs> she just went along and I knew what it was but I, you know I didn't even think that I probably should have prepared her for what she was going to see but and it the funny thing that evening it was uh there was thunderstorm warnings out so uh that kind of made it worse <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're sitting in the movie theater with the, your mother who's very quiet calm very sweet person who has no idea what she's getting into I probably, it was packed that night. I mean, it, it was, there wasn't an empty seat. I do remember hearing the thunder and 
And, you know, and it was coming a pretty good storm outside. And then it was like a tin roof uh, uh, theater, and you could hear the rain really pounding. And I think there might have been a little bit of hail in that rain, too. So it got pretty nasty outside. What was your reaction to seeing it? I think my mother had to sleep with me for a couple of weeks after that. <laughs> but I don't think she was uh, opposed to doing that. <laughs> So you get uh, so you watch The Exorcist. You get out of theater. You hadn't been able to see grandmother the whole time. Mm-hmm. So when you get out of the theater and see her, did she say anything? What was she like? She was looking at me kind of funny, and she didn't say anything. And of course, on the way home, the you know the girls and kids were talking, and Arlene didn't say anything. They didn't say anything. So when we got home and we got in the house, my mother said. I have never had such a bad experience in my life. I said, what is it? She said, I just knew all that thunder and lightning that we were going to get blowed away. And we're in there watching this horrible, awful, godless movie. And I'm going to go straight to hell for taking you to it and watching it myself. So, you know, she was pretty upset. The Exorcist came out about three years before Star Wars did. Uh, and so, like, now you have all these people, they get all this hype happens and people line up around the movie theaters and get all excited. Do you remember seeing, like, the news about all of the hype around The Exorcist? Yeah, it, they were talking in the news, you know, there'd been people faint and get sick. and But what was so scary about the movie at the time that we all thought that was real, that was based on a real event. Oh, kind of the Blair Witch kind of thing. Yes, yeah, that's what made it scary. Uh, you know, if it had just been some fiction or, you know, it would have been one thing, but the fact that, you know, this really happened, you know, and they really played that up, that it, it, this was a real event. So well, that made it scary. Do you remember the first time I saw The Exorcist? I was thinking about that. I, um, I think it was a Halloween. It was something you and Misty decided to do for Halloween, and... Uh, and I, I think, I, I remember saying, I, you know, I don't like that movie. I don't like to watch that movie to this day. Uh, it's probably the only movie. I've watched horror movies all the time. That movie still scares me. <laughs> That's <laughs> the only movie. That is the only movie in existence that scares me. It's The Exorcist. Well, I don't like a lot of gore in movies, but uh, that The Exorcist still scares me. And I, I don't like to watch it because it, I go to bed at night thinking about it and I don't know what it is about that particular movie that makes it so bad, but anyway, I think you and Misty were watching it, and it seems like you put on a, y'all had helmets or something y'all put on. <laughs> yeah, and, I think we put on helmets and had weapons, baseball yeah. bats and stuff. Yeah, well, that sounds about <laughs> like you, but I, 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 I probably tried to talk you out of watching it, and knowing you, you, were, you used to tell me all the time you'd watch these gory movies, and I'd say, Kevin... I really don't think you should be watching these. And you'd you'd tell me how they were made and how they created the blood and how they, you know. And I'm like, well, if he knows that much, he's okay to watch it. So I wasn't very strict about stuff like that. No, nah, I used to ride my bicycle to that little convenience store and rent all the horror movies out of there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's... Just went down the line, just one after the other, one after the <laughs> other one. Until I got the whole horror movie section. As long as I didn't have to watch it, I didn't care because I don't like that stuff. To this day, I don't like that stuff. The Exorcist is based on a novel by William Peter Blatty. And if you search the Chicago Tribune for the five years prior to the release of this novel, 
you'll find about 25 articles that even make any kind of mention of the word exorcism or exorcist. And only one of those was actually about an incident of exorcism actually taking place. The rest were uh, either about exorcisms that happened in previous centuries or the word exorcism or exorcist was just used as a colorful piece of language and it didn't actually have anything to do with demon possession. Obviously, when you run that same search for the five years after Blatty's novel gets released, you get thousands of hits. But if you run the search with limiters that remove articles that have any references to the movie, you still get 111 mentions of exorcisms. And unlike the pre-1971 articles, this 111 have titles such as Exorcism Fails, Diabetic Boy Dies, and Exorcism Leads to Fortune Teller's Arrest, and there's even one called Exorcism of Richard Nixon has been proposed. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't they, like, exorcise the entire country of Mexico a couple years back? I didn't hear about that. Yeah, there was, like, somebody tried to exorcise an entire country. (laughs) I want to say this was, I don't know, three, four years ago, give or take. Did it work? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not, since we still need to build a wall. Yeah, and there's still those cartels. (laughs) Oh, God, am I going to sound like a Trump person since I just said that? You are a Trump person. No! (laughs) No! MAGA! (laughs) I can't tell you how many times I've heard you shout MAGA. (laughs) Shit. You said that right as soon as you opened the door. I was like, hey, Jamie, and you go, MAGA! Oh, God, are you going to get me a MAGA hat for Christmas? (laughs) I am now. (laughs) So among these articles in the five years following the release of the novel The Exorcist, there's one article titled British Wife Killer Stirs Exorcism Debate. And it's not a case that got a lot of attention here in the United States, but it's the one we're about to talk about. So against this backdrop of the renewed interest in exorcisms and demons, You have an Osset, West Yorkshire bloke named Michael Taylor. I said bloke. Mm -hmm. It's a British thing. You you don't get it. (laughs) Michael Taylor's 31 years old. Taylor seems like a normal enough chap. He managed to snag himself a wife, Christine Taylor. She was 29 years old when all of this happened. And together, the couple had five children. All of them were boys aged between 6 and 12 years old. In 1974, five boys, six to 12. That sounds like hell. It's a fucking nightmare. People close to the Taylors said that the couple seemed like they were very much in love. Uh, They were by no means wealthy, but they were getting by all right. Up until around 1974, when Michael started having some back problems. So Michael Taylor's work involved operating various agricultural machines and equipment, farm equipment. And it wasn't terribly labor-intensive, but it was also physically strenuous enough that his back often kept him from being able to go to work, and it did put a little bit of a financial strain on the Taylor family. And this sporadic kind of ability to work was apparently very stressful for Michael. They did have five kids. Yeah, you said they were 6 to 12, though. I mean, at some point, they just start taking care of themselves, right? (laughs) My brain just went to these terrible thoughts of, like... Indian children who've had like their legs cut off or their eyes gouged out so they'll be able to beg more effectively. (laughs) It was a very dark thought. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, it didn't occur to Michael Taylor to cut his children's legs off <laughs> and have them beg for money like Jamie would have done. So Stop it. This Take put this them out. In, Take this, this put them in uh, a, a little bit of a financial situation. Mm-hmm. There was seemingly no emotional or psychological issues with Michael Taylor prior to the events that led up to this incident. In 1974, though, Michael starts feeling depressed because of these back problems that he's having. This depression doesn't seem to be anything too serious. And Michael's probably thinking that he needs something to do to kind of snap out of this this funk that he's in. So one day, a friend of the family, Barbara Wardman, comes by and she starts telling the Taylors about this Christian fellowship group that she's been involved with. And the Taylors aren't especially religious at all. Um, There's really no indication that they've ever spent a whole lot of time in church. But if you've got a friend that's really Jesus-y, you know, sometimes it's better to just let them talk about it. And Barbara's telling them that uh, this group isn't like your normal stuffy church situation where people just sit in pews and sing hymns. Uh, No, she's saying that this, this fellowship practices what's called charismatic Christianity. These are people who put uh, an extra emphasis on the more supernatural aspects of religion. So these charismatic Christians are really into faith healing and miracles, and they're apparently very energetic. They listen to more upbeat music as opposed to Christian hymns. Barbara's like, it's fun, you're going to love it. And the tailors say, Michael's just moping around anyway. Maybe this is going to bring him out of his spell that he's in. Sure. That's not so strange. People often turn to religion when they're having a slump. And they also have five kids they get away from when they go do this. Yeah, you'd think, though, if you were going to go get involved with something like that, you'd want the kids to come along, too. Like, be a part of, not obviously, like, the group that they were involved (laughs) in, but, you know, Sunday school for kids, you know, if you're really into it, you get the entire family involved. Yeah, I think we're about to hear this isn't really a Sunday school kind of situation that <laughs> no, they've got going on not. in this charismatic. But did Christian they fellowship. did they have daycare though, or like babysitting time during these sessions? I would be really interested to know that. Was there somebody who was just assigned to watch the children of the people who were participating in this? I did so much goddamn research on this. <laughs> And you just asked me something I don't know the answer to. I have no idea if the Charismatic Christian Fellowship had That's important. Service. I've had kids. I'm going to want to know if there's free fucking daycare. I mean, casinos have daycare. Casinos have daycare? I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> That's a bunch of depressed babies. <laughs> I'll tell you a story later. It's fucking terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just. Peek over that bassinet and watch Dad lose your college fund. <laughs> no, they're like, they print out uh, stickers with barcodes on the back and slap them on the kids' backs so that they can scan them when the parents don't come back to get them. Seriously. Wow. It's a thing. <laughs> hmm, okay. <clears throat> <laughs> so the Taylors join this family friend of theirs, Barbara, and they go to this Christian fellowship meeting. And this is the first time that Michael Taylor lays eyes on 22-year-old Marie Robinson. Marie Robinson, it took me a long time to find a picture of her. I couldn't really find one online, but I found a historic image reseller who had one, so I ordered one. It's going to be on our website. Marie Robinson's not bad looking. She has a pleasant face. Just straight teeth. Whoa, was that super important to you? Straight teeth. 
Well, that's an odd first thing to. Well, she's smiling in this photo. She has like smiling eyes, you know. She's not oh, no. like a. She's got some great little uh, smiley wrinkles going on there. Like yeah. That. Yeah. She's pretty. Mm hmm. Sure. I have a little crush on 1974 Marie Robinson, if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah, I know. That's obvious considering you ordered a fucking print of her photo <laughs> on the internet. But, I mean, she's more attractive than Catherine I wanted to Knight. put it on the website. I didn't... It has been in my bedroom, but that's just coincidental. It, it really is <laughs> now coincidental. Now that you say that, I, I notice that it's a little banged up over here. <laughs> <laughs> that's not... <laughs> I promise you I've not been doing anything ungodly with my photo of Marie Robinson from 1974. I think she would hate that, so that's good. Because, I mean, if anybody's going to sue us, it's going to be her for this episode. <laughs> no, you can't find her. She's off the grid. So Marie Robinson's the leader of this fellowship group that they're all going to see. She's consistently referred to in news reports as being a lay preacher. So she's not any kind of official clergy. She just leads this fellowship group. So the Taylors go to this first meeting. They seem to enjoy themselves because they go back the second time. So on the Taylors' second time going to this Christian fellowship meeting, Michael shares with Marie Robinson that he's had some back problems and that he's feeling a little bit down about it. And Marie Robinson decides that she is going to heal Michael Taylor right there. She starts gyrating and shaking, and she's going to do a laying on of the hands to Michael Taylor. That's why she's a lay preacher. The laying on of the hands. Is that mm -hmm. a pun? No, that's not a pun. You still don't understand how <laughs> puns work. <laughs> You're a very intelligent man. I don't understand how you don't understand how puns work. I don't understand how I've gotten away with not understanding puns for this long because every time somebody tells a shitty joke, you just think I'm it's like, a pun. Well, but I say out loud, I don't like puns. And then the people are like, well, I do like puns and I made one. So I don't know how I haven't been called out on this before now, but I apparently genuinely have no, you, no you understanding don't understand of how it works you I don't, don't understand, understand what, how it works what puns and are. i've tried to tell you on multiple occasions and it's just not clicking in your brain it's your brain tumor <laughs> oh god your brain tumor <laughs> is keeping you from understanding what a pun is for those of you listening i have a broken rib a brain tumor and an enlarged heart <laughs> i'm not going to be here much longer <laughs> That's not true. You've had the brain tumor for years, <laughs> yeah, apparently. Well, yeah, I've had the brain tumor since I was a kid. Uh, the broken rib's brand new. Oh, that'll <laughs> heal up just fine. No, it won't. It's like broke, broke. Floating, it's floating ribs are great. For what? I don't know. Maybe getting out of a Houdini type setup. Oh, that is true. I could yeah, be one of those people. I feel people, like you can use that to your advantage. I could be one of those people that escape straight jackets yeah. because I have a broken rib. Yeah. Think positive, Kevin. Well, I am now. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So Marie Robinson, this woman that we're looking at the picture of, gyrating, vibrating. She's about to put her hands on Michael Taylor, who, as we will learn, has a huge crush on Marie Robinson. But just when she's about to touch him, this elderly woman named Mavis Smith starts crying. And Marie has to decide if she's going to deal with this crying elderly woman or if she's going to continue her healing of Michael Taylor. So she never actually touches Michael Taylor and she decides to go to this elderly woman. 
and Marie Robinson goes to Mavis instead of Michael. And Michael, having never been a very religious person, on his second trip to this Christian fellowship group, starts talking in tongues. And then, like, I'm sure everybody there was like, this dude's been here for like two days and he's already talking in tongues. I'm wondering what's going on here because clearly you're skeptical about Michael's commitment to the Lord <laughs> as opposed to his commitment to her gyrating in front of him again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think you've got some folks, though, who would absolutely argue that the spirit hits you when it hits you. It's not a matter of, like, putting your time in. You can't control the speaking in tongues. Do you believe that that's a real thing? I believe that there are a lot of people who believe that that's a real thing. I do, too. But you're still I am skeptical. Not, I you're am, still skeptical. I am not sure that on his second visit to this group that Michael Taylor has bought into this to the point where he is speaking in tongues. There's a part of me that thinks this was... I have something wrong with me. The hot girl's about to touch me. This old lady starts crying. It seems like she's worse off than me. So the hot girl's going to the old lady. If I start going, or, you know, it's hard to do the tongue speaking. But if I start doing like a thing. Not if the Lord lets you do it. (laughs) I feel like at this point, it's a competition between Michael Taylor and Mavis. So Michael is... He wants to one-up the he old lady. He wants to one-up Mavis so that Marie Robinson will come back to him. You are making so many assumptions about his character right now. I have a lot of assumptions about Michael Taylor's character. I, there is, I, cannot... I mean, like, let's, let's forget about the whole murdery aspect here. I mean, you don't know what he was thinking. Maybe... I cannot make this guy's story make sense in my mind. Okay. Usually, I feel like I can understand a motivation behind something or... This is why somebody did something. Even if why they did it is just that they were on drugs. But this, there's just something about this that seems really off to me. So after this incident at the fellowship where Michael Taylor starts speaking in tongues, he starts going downhill fast. In an article with the London Times, one of his neighbors spoke about Michael's behavior around this period. The quote from the London Times is, Mrs. Betty Easter of Headlands Avenue, Osset, said that on October 3rd, she heard Mr. Taylor shouting, Drink milk, the milk of human kindness. When she hears this shouting, she goes outside to see what's happening. And Michael Taylor is outside. He points his finger at Betty Easter, spits on the ground, and says, The wrath of God is upon you. So Michael Taylor very quickly comes unhinged after joining this Christian fellowship group. What do you know about Betty? What, you think she's lying? Yeah, maybe maybe there was a reason the wrath of God was on her. Uh, I can see pointing <laughs> your finger at somebody and saying uh, the wrath of God is upon you. I don't see just shouting at no one, drink milk, the milk of human kindness. That sounds pretty pleasant if you don't attribute it to a murderer, you know? Oh, really? You think it'd be pleasant if you had drink, a neighbor? Drink some human kindness. You I mean, think it'd be pleasant if you had a neighbor who one morning is just out in the yard shouting, drink milk, the milk of human kindness. Dude, I had a creepy neighbor once who bought a trampoline at my yard sale so he could jump up over the fence to still spy on us after I put this fence up. <laughs> what? 
Sorry, your eyebrow just went crazy. God it was damn great. It, with the fucking it was great. I love your eyebrows, Kevin. You all went to the bar downtown pub. They hired a new bartender, and uh, first thing she said to you, he said to you, was something about like your eyebrows, your faces, your face is going crazy. <laughs> and then Don't. everybody around me started laughing, and I <laughs> was absolutely certain that somebody put this person up to that. <laughs> and then she ended up buying me a shot because nobody put her up to that. She did not know that that was like a thing mm. that you don't say to me anymore, even though you still say it. Mm-hmm. You blamed me enough for that. I think that I have license to talk about your eyebrows whenever I want to. I was just stating facts, but expressive. You know, I, 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 there are people that would be happy to have expressive eyebrows. Oh hell yeah! You are not one of them, apparently. <laughs> So Michael Taylor and Marie Robinson start spending a whole lot of time together. And it seems like the amount of time that Michael gets to spend around Marie is directly proportional to how batshit crazy he's acting. So at one point, Michael starts claiming that he's afraid of the moon. The moon. And because of this, Marie Robinson spends the night at the Taylor home. And according to Marie Robinson later on, they stayed up all night making the sign of the cross over each other. (laughs) At this point, Marie Robinson has to know that Michael Taylor is head over heels for her. And she's feeding into this. She's staying all night with this man. And they're making the sign of the cross over each other. All night. The sign of the cross. (laughs) A lot of this stuff that's going to happen up to the murder is really funny if you try to envision it in your mind. How how does it happen where, you know, so the articles say they're making the sign of the cross over each other. What is the transition between one person and the other one like? So Michael Taylor is on the floor. Marie Robinson is over Michael Taylor. You know, spectacles, testicles. Watch wallet. (laughs) You ever heard that? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, I mean, at some point, you know, either Marie or Michael. So so if Marie's doing this over Michael, then at some point Marie has to say, okay, it's my turn. And then like she lays down and then Michael makes the cross over her. Because the moon is scary. (laughs) Because the moon is scary. (laughs) Good God, I cannot imagine being his wife. That's what we're getting to. Yeah. Because so this hot little 22-year-old number is spending all night with Christine Taylor's husband making the sign of the cross over him. And Christine Taylor starts getting pissed off about this. I would, too. And she's like, you know, Michael, I don't, I don't care what you're afraid of. You can't be sitting up all night with this 22-year-old hussy. Hussy? Not is hussy. That, is that a... Hussy or huzzy? You What's said, the difference? You said huzzy. I've never heard huzzy. Huzzy? Well, I'm from the streets. <laughs> you don't. From the streets? You don't. <laughs> You're absolutely not from the streets. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't got a life. I mean, you're from Walker County, <laughs> and that's something, but there aren't even real roads in Walker County, right? <laughs> Come on. You're from a gravel road. You know what, Jamie? Hmm. You ain't got to like it because the hood going to love it. (laughs) Huzzy. (laughs) 
Oh, Lord. Christine Taylor is getting pretty annoyed by this relationship that, that Michael's forming with Marie Robinson. And that she seems like an understatement, but all right. Yeah, well, she's getting very upset about this. And she actually brings it up at one of these Christian fellowship meetings. And she calls Marie Taylor out and she says, in front of all of these people, I think you're sleeping with my husband. Quit it. Uh, but Marie Robinson somehow able to diffuse this situation when Christine Taylor brings this up. And uh, Marie Robinson keeps coming over to the Taylor home. She doesn't have any more sleepovers, but she's still coming over pretty much daily. On one of these visits to the Taylor home, and we only have Marie Robinson's recounting of this. Michael Taylor's never talked about this. A lot of the websites that I see put this event happening at one of the fellowship meetings. I'm going to say that this happened in the Taylor home because the story that I read about this incident in the London Times put this happening in the Taylor's home. So during one of Marie Robinson's visits to the Taylor house, Michael kisses her while his wife is out of the room. According to Marie Robinson, she says that she's not having this. And she says to Michael, you're married and this is wrong. And Michael Taylor, according to Marie Robinson, agrees. So he's undoubtedly humiliated by this rejection. And Michael Taylor gets super awkward. Super awkward. He gets real like you think I'm awkward. What Michael Taylor does <laughs> that's what I was after trying he to tries out. to Yes. What Michael Taylor does after he tries to kiss Marie Robinson and she rejects him. Mm-hmm. All super of, super awkward. Yes, and I know all about being awkward. Mm-hmm. This is worse You're than champ. me. This You're is worse champ. than me. I, I am champion awkward, but this is gold medal awkward. <laughs> okay. Because Tell when, us the story. <laughs> when when Michael Taylor's wife Christine comes back in the room. Michael Taylor says, I have some fantastic news. And he says, and this is a quote as recounted by Marie Robinson, we have won a great victory for the Lord. A miracle has happened. We have both overcome our passions. How that work with Christine? <laughs> just, just tell me. If he hadn't said this, Christine wouldn't have known anything about this, but he's embarrassed. Christine comes in. He flips out. He says, we've just won this victory for the Lord. And then he has this moment that's like, and I've been thinking about, I feel like this reminds me of that time that Ashley Simpson was on Saturday Night Live and she was going to lip sing and they played the wrong music. Something happened in her brain that was like, this is live. They're playing the wrong song. And she just did this weird little Irish jig and walked off the stage. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I feel like Michael Taylor is so awkward and put off by what has just happened. That what he a bizarre just... comparison. But okay. It's not bizarre. It's the same no, thing. No, no. I, I, but seriously, like Ashley Simpson. <laughs> there are so many other explanations. So his wife comes in. He says this. He's already embarrassed. He says this thing that I am sure embarrassed him further that he did not come up with a better thing to say than that or just not say anything at all. I think that's you putting yourself in this scenario where you've said something. I don't know that he felt bad about that. Maybe not. He seems like a man with purpose. He did murder his wife. Eventually. Yes. Spoiler alert. But seriously, I think you are putting too much of yourself in this awkward situation, but go. I spend a lot of time looking these things I up. Know. It's hard to not 
to detach yourself, Kevin. So Michael Taylor says this very awkward thing, mm-hmm. and then he cranks it up a notch, and he starts staring at Marie and making crazy faces at her. And Marie, according to her, gets very freaked out about these crazy faces that Michael Taylor's making, and she starts speaking in tongues in some kind of bizarre effort to make Michael Taylor stop making faces at her. And then Michael Taylor starts screaming in tongues. And so they're having this complete gibberish yelling match Mm -hmm. while Christine Taylor is standing there watching them. Michael turns up the dial again and starts slapping Marie Robinson in the face. Then... He knocks Marie Robinson down and pins her to the ground. And in her testimony later on, Marie Robinson claimed that she was fearing for her life at this point. And she said, quote, I knew that only the name of Jesus would save me. And I started saying over and over again, Jesus. So poor Christine Taylor, Michael's wife. These two are yelling gibberish at each other. Michael starts slapping this woman, gets on top of her. This woman starts going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Christine Taylor has no idea what to do. So she just starts going, Jesus, 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 too. This scene is just bizarre. No, this is 1980s WrestleMania shit. It's out of control. So this this whole incident somehow gets broken up. And Michael Taylor thereafter claims to have no memory whatsoever of what an asshole he was that night. I pulled that one before. (laughs) And somehow, by the next day, this is all water under the bridge for Marie Robinson. She has already forgiven Michael for slapping her and pinning her to the ground. I feel like there was something more going on with those two. Like sex? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So all of this business with Michael Taylor speaking in tongues, slapping people talking gibberish to the neighbors, gets around to the nearby vicar, Reverend Peter Vincent. Peter Vincent, like I said, is uh, the local vicar, which is kind of like the bishop's deputy. And a meeting is set up between the Taylors and Peter Vincent. Peter Vincent's wife, Sally, prepares a meal, and the Vincents and the Taylors take their seats at this table uh, with a few other interested parties. And things seem fine and normal at first. Then the Vincent's cat walks into the room and Michael smashes his plate of food onto the floor, grabs the cat and throws it out the window. Apparently, right then and there, Peter and Sally Vincent decide that Michael Taylor needs an exorcism. Sally Vincent, as it turns out, is very interesting In pretty much, well, in all of the London Times articles that I found about this, Sally Vincent, Peter Vincent's wife, is essentially mentioned as an afterthought. Somebody was just there. But we spoke with someone who was very close with the Vincents during the time that this happened. And this person seems to feel that Sally might have had a much larger contribution to this event that's about to happen than many people ever believed. So the conversation that you're about to hear is one between myself and a man named Phil, who grew up in Osset, where this story takes place. He was about 15 at the time of these events, and Sally Vincent 
was actually his school teacher at Highfield Grammar School. And Phil pretty quickly became very close with the Vincent family. Hello? Hi, is this Phil? It's, is that Kevin? It's Kevin from Alabama. Hi, Kevin. <laughs> We've made contact at last. Yeah. We've been emailing each other for a few weeks now, right? Yes, right. Anyway, what, what exactly do you want to ask me, Kevin? Oh, uh, well, I kind of want to go through some of the stuff that I saw in your blog. So when you were about 15, uh, a new teacher gets employed at the school that you're going to in Osset, I believe. And, That's right. And that the, was Sally Vincent. Sally Vincent, the wife of Peter That was Vincent. Peter Vincent's wife. That's right. Yeah. What was she like? When you first met her, you thought she was a very interesting woman, a very strong woman, strong personality, very nice, very kind, very generous, uh, and a very sincere person. Mm. But as you got to know her, it became evident she had a little bit of an obsession. And uh, this obsession was the devil. Mm. Um, she seemed to see the devil in everything. And she encouraged people to carry a crucifix with them at all times. Um, she was very prone to passing every problem that anybody had, any personal problem, any trauma, any upset. Oh, that was the work of the devil. And you need, we need to cast the devil out of you. Uh, everything was down to the devil, and it became it, it was obviously an obsession of hers. And it was a little bit disturbing, but she was very, very, she seemed to be very much in tune with what was going on at the time in this country called the evangelical movement. Mm-hmm. It, I suppose it, it came from the Bible Belt, you know, from the southern states yeah. uh, of America, basically. It spilt over, and she latched onto it immediately. But she was very obsessed, I think, by the, the, the idea, the concept of devil possession. That's interesting that she was, I mean, I would have assumed that she would have been very religious being, you know, married to a, a vicar, but for her to be this obsessed with the devil prior to this whole Michael Taylor thing is interesting. It was, it was round about the same time as well that the, the film The Exorcist was released in mm-hmm. this country. And you know what a, what a sensation that became. Oh, yeah. It was probably the most shocking and frightening film made to that point in time. And it was having a lot of effect, effects on people. Uh, generally, people were um, disturbed by it. Mm-hmm. And this just seemed to fuel her, her conviction about exorcism. I don't think it was be- uh, the way she acted was because of the film. I think it was something that was like, it became like an almost an ally to her cause, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It backed her beliefs and her obsession up, if you like, because she could use the idea and the concept of the film when explaining to people what devil possession was. And because Sally Vincent was a very strong personality, it was very difficult to disbelieve anything she said. And it was very easy to be convinced that she knew exactly what she was talking about. And there was no possible chance that she could possibly have been wrong. Mm-hmm. So she, it was easy for her to convince people that they were actually possessed by the devil. And then this, course, this thing happened um, with um, Peter Vincent and Sally Vincent at Garber in Barnsley mm-hmm. with uh, Michael Taylor, who came from Osset. One thing I will, I will tell you what's on my mind. Peter Vincent, for all, was a very nice guy. He was a, a good vicar, I suppose. He was, it was evident that he didn't wear the trousers in that household if you understand what I mean oh, by really? that. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. She was, she was the dominant one of the pair. She was only the vicar's wife, but she, if he had to do whatever she told him, she was the one that made the decisions. He was very much under uh, power, if you like. So you kind of feel like Sally was the instigator of this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was a school teacher, so mm-hmm. she was used to taking command. She was used to giving orders. 
she was used to being in control. So, and he was a very meek, mild, mild-mannered man. Was was Peter very, very charming, but it was obviously not the one that was making the major decisions within the within the vicarage. Uh, she was the dominant one, hmm. um, which is probably what led to the the tragedy, basically. Uh, if it hadn't have been for a, if it hadn't been for a eagerness to to exercise anybody in anything that was so any slight signs of being unstable. So after deciding that Michael Taylor is in need of this exorcism, the Vincents invite a Methodist preacher and that preacher's wife, and also the Reverend Raymond Smith, who is the only person in this entire group who has a sensible idea. So the Reverend Smith says when he gets there, hey, has anybody taken Michael Taylor to the doctor yet? Maybe we should do that first and see if there's anything medically wrong with him. And the Vincents say no. He threw a cat out a window. He's obviously possessed. <laughs> so on the night of October 5th, 1974, this dream team that the Vincents have assembled carry out this exorcism of Michael Taylor. They do it at, a, at the nearby St. Thomas's Church, and they do it at midnight, and they light a bunch of candles. I don't know why they do it at midnight. I'm assuming that's for, like, dramatic effect. Wait, maybe they had to wait for a babysitter. Is that a pun? Because <laughs> it wasn't funny. It's not a pun. <laughs> it's not a pun. Okay, go on. They lay Michael Taylor on the floor, and they start this exorcism. Michael Taylor starts snarling, pitching a fit. He's continually having to be held down, and eventually they end up tying Michael Taylor to the floor. And this group of exorcists does some really strange things. If Michael Taylor had brought a cross with him. They set Michael Taylor's cross that he brought on fire. They gather up some other crosses, though, that had not previously belonged to Michael Taylor, and they shove those in Michael Taylor's mouth. Through all of this, they're splashing Michael Taylor with holy water, and this goes on for seven full hours. Seven hours, Michael Taylor is tied to the floor, being splashed with water, having his personal effects set on fire, and having people shove crosses in his mouth. And 7 a.m. comes around, and everybody's completely worn out because they've been at this for, like I said, seven hours. The Vincents are very proud of themselves because, uh, according to them, they had exercised 40 demons out of Michael Taylor. Unfortunately, though, as it turns out, there were 43 demons. So they managed to get out. They named all of these demons. They got out the demon of adultery. That was one Michael needed out. Well, clearly. I mean, we've been looking at that picture of Marie for too long tonight. I would need that one out of me, too. <laughs> they got out the demon of lewdness. But the three that they left... Were kind of important. They were pretty important. <laughs> the three demons that the Vincent said that they were unable to get out, that they were going to get out later. They were all going to take a break and get these last three out. Those three demons were the demons of insanity, the demon of violence, and the demon of murder. <sighs> I don't know a lot about exorcisms. 
I don't know if this is the kind of thing that you can prioritize the demons that you get out, what order you get them out. But I think that if you're going to prioritize the removal of demons, those were probably the three that you should have started with. I don't think it works that way. I think that Michael Taylor... I don't think it works that way. In theory, I don't think it works that way. Because I think he could have made it through the night all right. I think that if the demons that you left in there were like the demons of not holding the door open for people and (laughs) the demon of puns, he could have got away with those for a day. Mrs. Smith the wife of that contextually reasonable person, calls the police. This is before Michael Taylor commits these murders. So while they're taking their exorcism break, Mrs. Smith calls the police. She says, hey, we just performed an exorcism, but we didn't get the murder demon out. So it would be great if a cop could go and check on this place. And the cops are like, all right, thanks for the heads up. We'll totally do that. And they get off the phone with her, which is, that's a completely reasonable response from the police to me. So in other words, the police did not do anything. So on October 6th, the morning after this exorcism happens, 1974, a friend of the family picks Michael and Christine Taylor up and takes them home. They get home at about 9 a.m., Christine gets out of the car and speaks very briefly with a neighbor of hers who later recounted that Christine looked very tired and very stressed. She told Christine tells. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah, Her husband's cheating on her. And now she's having to drive him around to get an exorcism done. Yeah. I would also be like, fuck you. You can eat beans out of a can for dinner. I'm going to the bar. I remember dating people who had to pick me up drunk at a bar, and I was like, "Oh man, I feel like such an ass." Like if you have <laughs> yeah. to, if I, if my wife has to come pick me up from my exorcism. <laughs> yeah, right. <sighs> well, you better make her some fucking dinner the next night, not murder her. So Christine tells this neighbor that her and Michael were going to get a few hours of rest, and she tells the neighbor after we we kind of take a nap, we're taking Michael. To the doctor. Finally. Throughout all of this, nobody has considered that maybe they should take Michael Taylor to the doctor until now. So this friend of the Taylors who drove them home very fortunately has the idea that he wants to take their five children to stay with their grandparents so that Christine and Michael can get some rest. And this turns out to be the best idea anybody had in this entire story. About an hour after the Taylors walked into their home, the Osset police receive a call that there is a naked man wandering around this neighborhood who is covered in red paint. This is a small town. It's Sunday morning, and Michael Taylor is in the middle of the street. The police find him pretty quickly. They also realize almost immediately that he is not covered in paint. It's actually blood. Their first thought is that he's been injured, but... Considering that he is completely naked, it's pretty easy to give him a once-over and find that he doesn't actually have any wounds, at least not any that were prominent enough to cause that amount of blood. While the police are trying to wrap their minds around what might be going on here, 
Michael Taylor is repeating over and over in a very soft voice, it is the blood of Satan. It is the blood of Satan. That's going to do it for part one of the worst exorcism ever. Part two should be coming out before long, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can get that as soon as it drops. In part two, we will find out why you should never leave an exorcism unfinished. We'll catch up again with our new friend Phil, and we'll discuss the aftermath of this Osset murder case. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to hop onto iTunes and give us a review. If you didn't enjoy the episode, feel free to send us some hate mail. You can get in touch with us at info at whereistheline.net. You can also reach out to us on Facebook. We enjoy talking to people who listen to the episode, so feel free to reach out. We will get back in touch with you. The last person that said anything about us on social media got a pair of used boxer shorts autographed, complete with a completely bogus certificate of authenticity. (laughs) That could be you. So whatever you think about the show, let us know. We'll be really creepy about it. Kids, when you go to bed, stay away from your closets and don't look under your